to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is a show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. We seem to be collectively suffering from a sort of cultural amnesia. We tend to get boxed in by one perspective on so many important topics, our origins, our true history. We have a monolithic interpretation of the Bible, etc., etc. The whole pattern comes into view, but you need other sources than the ones you get spoon-fed in public education and the corrupt mainstream media. Each one of us is responsible for our own emergence. What is out on the frontiers of our own spiritual knowing? And how far back does our history really go? Has there been clues left for us to discover and untangle the mysteries of our past? We seem to be at a point in our collective hero's journey where we are reclaiming some of the things that have been lost. We are gathering the pieces of ourselves, supporting one another, and readying ourselves for the upcoming chapters. Each awakening, each bit of wisdom uncovered, each mythic motif that begins to resonate inside us helps to bring us closer to our divine destiny. We are supported and uplifted in ways we are only now beginning to understand. Jim Willis was a Christian minister for 40 years. The author of 13 books on religion and spirituality, he has served as an adjunct professor in the fields of world religions and instrumental music. Upon retirement, he was determined to confront the essential spirituality that has inspired humankind since the very beginning of time. Here is my interview with Jim Willis. All right. I am here with author and thought leader, Jim Willis. Jim, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tony. Great to be with you. Appreciate it. Appreciate Ab- it. Absolutely. How, how many books have you written? I have a couple of your books. Have you read uh, like You know, it's hard to say. My my 13th book came out on, on April Fool's Day, and don't ask me how it happened. I have the faintest idea. 13. <laughs> wow. That is, yeah. that is quite an accomplishment. Good for you. Well, I didn't. I didn't start until late. Um, I, I was uh, my my first book was Journey Home, and that was back around uh, oh late nineteen hundreds. I, I think it came out in two thousand and one, and I fiddled faddled with it around a little bit. But by the time I retired, I decided. Uh, I just had too much I wanted to study. So books started coming. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you've written, a, a, I have a couple of your books that I've recently read that were fantastic. And, you know, you. You, you, you cover some controversial topics or at least topics that would be considered esoteric, like ancient aliens and alternative viewpoints on the Bible. And I guess I wanted to ask you, like, how did you first get interested? My My listeners know that my first entry point into the esoteric was crop circles. It was something that caught my eye when I was a young man. And I was just kind of like, what the hell are these things? And yeah. as I start, as I started to investigate, that sort of led to all the other stuff. It's like it opened up my mind to some possibilities that led to the exploration of a lot of topics that maybe people would have been like, oh, you're, you're looking at that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I really am. And so I guess I wanted to start by asking you, what was your first foray into maybe what would be considered esoteric topics? Oh, it was totally, totally accident. It happened to be dowsing. Um, you know, for, for 40 years, I was a, a, a full-time Christian minister while still being a musician and uh, being a college professor. I was teaching courses not only in instrumental music at college level, but also uh, comparative world religions. And 
And, uh, you know, you do this kind of stuff for 40 years and you always think, oh boy, it's going to be this fantastic journey and everyone around me is going to be exciting. And But like everything else, you know, you get so busy with worrying about the next thing that's going to come along. And mm-hmm. so I found myself at the ripe old age of 62. Uh, I had been talking about spirituality all my life. And the key word is about. I had been talking about it. Mm. And I wasn't really experiencing it because in this this crazy life we lead, it's so fast and it's so loud. It's just so noisy and it builds up your mind chatter so much. And you're always thinking about the next this or the next that, you know, and you just... You just don't have that time. So at the age of 62, I decided, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to retire early. I could get Social Security. I couldn't really afford it. But I said, why not? You know, life is short. Sure. So uh, I, we, I came out here. I've always loved the woods. Uh, I've always been, you know, uh, hunting and fishing and hiking and all that stuff. And I, I came out here to the woods in South Carolina, uh, total accident. It, it's a long story how we wound up settling here, but we had to build the road back to where we were and we had to put in power line and we had to do all that kind of stuff. And so we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And the idea was, I'm going to go on a retreat that's going to last probably about a year. Well, that was 12 years ago. And uh, when I first started getting away from people and away from the busyness, uh, I started doing a lot of uh, meditating and uh, one thing led to another. And one day I woke up and decided, you know, I want to learn how to douse. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I'd seen dowsers at work, you know, looking for water. And uh, I, 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 I was always kind of fascinated by it, but I didn't really believe in it or anything like that. So I went down to the local hardware store, a little town near us. And lo and behold, they didn't have any dowsing rods, but they did have a couple of pieces of copper wire that I cut to about 18, 19 inches long bend them in the shape of the letter L. That's why they're called L rods. Mm-hmm. And held one in each hand and went out to try to find water. And I, the idea was uh, when you're concentrating on water, when you cross over somewhere, place where water is, the rods will cross and uh, that'll be it. You'll know, well, I struck out totally. Didn't mm. get anywhere. Yep. So went back inside on the internet. That's what we all do nowadays for serious research, right? Went on the internet, typed in some things and Finally found this thing about dowsing for earth energy. Now, I I didn't think I was going to have any luck with it because I, I'm not even sure I believed at that point in earth energy. I believed in water. Right. So I went out and I took the step that changed my life forever. Right out in front of the house, concentrating totally on earth energy. I took a step and all of a sudden the dowsing rods in my hands, they were pointed straight forward. They just collapsed on each other. Huh. And I said, what is this? And I did it again. I did it with my eyes closed. I finally got my wife out to join me. I said, Barb, watch, make sure I'm not moving my hands or anything. And I had discovered this, you know, in effect, a river of earth energy that was 84 inches, uh, 84 and a half inches wide. Um, I had discovered that totally, well, I, I was about to say totally by accident. I've decided that things don't happen totally by accident. Right, right, right. I hear you. But I I had built the house right on what used to be called a ley line. Now they're calling it energy lanes, uh, energy Mm -hmm. lays or energy lines. And all of a sudden, I was aware of this energy that was around me. And once that 
uh, you know, that the door was open and I started all of a sudden became a believer. I, I could start dousing, dousing for water. I could start dousing for anything. And then it finally got to the point where I, I had never, ever believed in this, but I even discovered that you could actually converse with this energy. Yes and no questions with dowsing rods. A yes, they would hmm. cross. A no, they would just stay there. And, uh, you know, for a left brain, intellectual, science-driven guy, uh, it just blew my mind. And through that, one thing led to another. I, I won't take up all of our time doing the whole story, but one thing led to another. And uh, in the midst of all of this meditation and all of this contemplation and all this quiet time, uh, I had an out-of-body experience for the first time in my life. And I had never... I had never believed in that either. All this has happened within the last 12 years. And uh, once you have an out-of-body experience, you, you, you know you can never convince anybody else that they're real, but you know that in the fiber of your being, what you experienced was something that was real. And it just happened to me like it happened like everybody. It made me aware of the fact that the reality that we see the reality that's bounded in by our five senses, you know, mm -hmm. is just one small section of a greater reality and called it mind, to call it consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, I used to call it God, although I don't use that term much anymore because it carries so much baggage. I mean, I can yep. use the word God, but uh, yeah, other you. people will assume yep. that I'm saying what they, right. what they, what they call it. Well, and, and we're going to talk about that in just a bit. You know, yeah. you're, it's funny. Your story about the ley lines reminds me of a time, the first time I ever went to Sedona. And I remember oh, yeah. getting out of the car at night and we were camping with some friends. And I remember going, what in the heck is yeah. going on with this place? Like, what, yeah. is un what is underneath me? Like, I could really feel the power of the earth there. And, oh, you know, yeah. it's got a reputation of being, you know, like an earth chakra if you... Right you know how to model that but you know it yep. it definitely there's definitely energy there that i'm sure dowsing rods would go crazy over but i wanted to ask you you know um people are getting more aware of the ancient alien uh, uh theory you know you've yep. you've written yep. about it you know you've you've got two your two recent books ancient gods lost histories hidden truths and the conspiracy of silence has got some really good information about it. And, you know, I go up to my father-in-law's and he'll have the History Channel on watching that show. So I know a lot of people are becoming aware of the Anunnaki. And this is something that was kind of put forth by Zechariah Sitchin, who was a, right. you know, a famous scholar and one of the only people that could read, uh, you know, Sumerian cuneiform. And so a lot of this is based on his thought process around it. And whether you believe it or not, it opens up a possibility that maybe we have not been told the whole truth about our history yeah. and whether or not Zechariah Sitchin is completely spot on with his interpretations. What does the Anunnaki myth, the ancient alien myth, what is it trying to teach us? Like what can you take, what can you take out of the myth? Even if you're not going to go all in and say, I completely believe this, and I'm going to build my reality around this. What, what is the myth teaching humanity right now? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. When 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 you talk about seeing this on the television now, uh, that's that's good and that's bad. You know, for a long time, uh, one of my books talk or a couple of my books talk about the conspiracy, what I call the conspiracy of silence. For a long time, information only reached the public after it was filtered through academia. Mm 
mm-hmm. uh, you had to pass muster and you had to get it through committees. And the committees had a, an agenda. They censored the truth just like every other human organization does, whether it's political or religious or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. And uh, when Sitchin came out, uh, it came out at a time when his, some of his followers had discovered through television, uh, Ancient Aliens and History Channel and all that kind of stuff, for the first time you could do an end around academia. You could get information right out to the public without going through a censoring committee and having to get it approved. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a good thing and a bad thing. And I think the Anunnaki uh, are probably the greatest example of this because um, Sitchin didn't say everything that people said he said. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I understand. Yeah. And, and, uh, and on the other hand, he, he hit some, some great, I mean, he, he was one of the few people in the world that could, that could translate, uh, you know, uh, Sumerian cuneiform. And, yeah. and, and, and he did it. And when he talked about the Anuna gods or the Anunnaki, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it caught the attention because I think what he was giving us here is the classic example, and this finally gets around to answering your question here, that he gives, he's giving us the final example of the idea of a world of duality. Mm. And that includes up and down and right and left, but it also includes good and bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chief Anuna gods, uh, the god named Enlil and the god named uh, Enki, and they were brothers, or some people say half-brothers, and they were warring. And you find this in every single great uh, religious tradition. You find it in Christianity, of course, in the Bible and the Garden of Eden, and and uh, the man and woman were one with each other, and they were one with God, and they were one with our environment. Everything was perfect. Yeah. And all of a sudden, something happened. You know, uh, Eve ate the apple, gave it to her husband. He ate it, and now they were separated from God. Now they were separated from each other, and now they were separated from their environment. And so, I, I. Whether we accept those stories as true or not, mm-hmm. I think we have to accept the fact that we are subconsciously aware of the fact of this duality, that something is wrong. Now, this is this is not a new thing. The, the, the Buddha was on top of this 2,500 years ago. He saw the world in duality, but he was the first to really talk about not identifying with one and rejecting the other as most of the religions of the world teach us, you know, identify with the good, resist the bad. No, the Buddha said we got to accept them both and go the middle way, he said, right between the two, accepting both and holding them both in one in each hand and going to that place that embraces both, the place beyond that embraces both. And I think think that's probably the greatest truth, the great spiritual truth that that we can bring back from all of this. What do you think of people that are uh, thinkers that correspond the Sumerian um, gods with the Bible? So I've seen I've seen a number of occasions where they'll say, you know, Enlil, uh, who was really sort of the storm god or the war god, became Yahweh in the Bible, and they yeah. and then Enki, who was the pro humanity. Um, God uh, became the serpent, and so right. it's like the the winner wrote the story of the Bible and Lil, ah. but the but that was the God that was the punishing, judgmental God. I, I'm taking a Gnostic view here, right, right. But uh, you know, is is there strong parallels between the Sumerian pantheon and 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 the Bible with some all obviously some alterations? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I I I think there are. I I think they're 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 telling the same story, and the yeah. key to it is it all. You you put your finger right on it, Tony, when you said uh, you know the the history was written by the winners. Yep. And you know, for instance, if if you start to read the Bible, the Book of Genesis, in the way it's traditionally taught in Christianity and Judaism and Islam, you start to read it that way, and you get the idea that you know this the the good God created everything that was good, mm-hmm. and everything was wonderful. God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And then we kind of, we messed up somehow. You know, mm-hmm. we we ate the apple, and that's how it's traditionally taught. But what? If, according to the view that you just put forward, what if it didn't happen that way? What if, because uh, you know, there's there's a lot of open endings in that. I mean, how could a good God say, you know, don't don't commit, you know, in the Ten Commandments, don't murder anybody, and then turn around two pages later and say, now go kill all the Canaanites, you know, exactly, men, women yeah. and children and animals. Yeah. So, and 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 how could a good God put us in that? environment and say, you can have everything, but don't eat the fruit of the, of, of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's yes. the tree, duality, good yeah. and evil. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Well, of course they're going to eat the fruit of that tree. How could you not, you know? Right. And and so uh, the other side, the, there's another way of teaching this, and that's that the, 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 the bad god, uh, uh, Enlil, he was the one that really won. He was the mm-hmm. one that uh, saw the world was created very good, and he was the one that kind of messed it up, and he was the one that sent the flood, and he is the one that yeah. we have been worshiping. Um, it's uh, it's it's two totally different ways of reading the same story. Interestingly, the the fun part about this comes is that in the uh, traditional way of understanding it in, in the West, the serpent is evil because it comes and offers the uh, the apple to 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 Eve, but if you read it the other way, the serpent is not saying uh, is is not evil. The serpent is the good God, uh, and and offering the apple and saying, God knows if you eat of this tree, you will be as gods. It was a good gift, a gift to try to redo it. And uh, read that way, it's a totally different story. It comes out totally different. Fascinating stuff. I was talking with Ann Baring about that, and and I asked her specifically about the serpent, and she says, you know, in every wisdom tradition, the serpent was revered. It was connected to the divine feminine and the earth and the regenerative aspect of nature. And so it's only through this one particular reading of the Bible where the serpent is suddenly demonized literally and said, you know, this is the downfall came from the serpent. But yes, when you read it mythically and you expand your viewpoint, you can start to see, wait a minute, something's going on here. It's very tricky because when you start to say lower gods and cosmic, you know, it can be, it can sound blasphemous when you're criticizing, say, Yahweh or, or Jehovah, but read as a Gnostic, it's simply pointing, you know, the Gnostics called the, mm-hmm. they called it the false god, the demiurge, demiurge. Which was, yeah, which was set up, as we're talking about, as a, a kind of a false god, a lower tribal god that was jealous and required particular things, but was not on high, was not an up high cosmic uh, uh, divine father god. It was really a lower, uh, you know, it's a lot of ways to describe it, but it's challenging to talk to people about it because they they immediately want to go to their, especially if they're Christian, they want to go to their upbringing and say, sure. wait a minute, you're, you're criticizing the father god. And it's like, I'm not, I'm criticizing the way they've set this myth up 
to deceive you on where your real you know connection is with the divine. Yeah, yeah, right. And and of course, the the serpent was associated not with the man in the story, but with the right. woman exactly that, that, with the feminine, and this whole idea of the demiurge. And again, uh, you know, there are some people who are going to read this these stories literally. They're going to mm-hmm. they're going to read them as historical events. There are others who are going to read them as metaphors. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. A, a metaphor, a, a, a poem, for instance, or music can say things to us and speak to us in a way that words just can't. Yeah. And so when we read these things metaphorically, whether or not we allow them to look at them as historically, what we are doing is talking about what Carl Jung called uh, the great archetypes of the unconscious, where we're dealing with these great questions what is the nature of right and wrong? What is the 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 nature of duality? Uh, how did we get here, not just physically, but come to this spot? How come we're the only animal on earth today that has this whole idea about duality of right and wrong and everything else? Um, we can see other animals that seem to know what right and wrong is. I mean, like my my dog every once in a while will do something he knows that he's not right. But it, it's just an attitude that I've taught. I mean, we're yeah. we're dealing with the complexities of it. What is the nature of this? And if we follow that through, then we begin to say we are, you know, human beings are much more than just physical creatures because we can deal with these kinds of uh, earth-shattering metaphors and say, who are we really and mm-hmm. what's really going on? That's beautiful. I mean, in, in your book, um, Censoring God, the History of the Lost Books, you write about scriptures and teachings and, um, you know, uh, gospels that didn't make the cut. So it's really, it's an interesting take where you're looking at, you know, how did the priesthood edit what was going to be in the Bible? This is right in line with what we're talking about. And, you know, two famous uh, uh, books are uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Scriptures. These have been yeah. read. Uh, they've been they're very very uh, uh, fantastic alternate you know texts of mm-hmm. of the same time frame. You know what what did you find in your in your readings, especially since you were a minister? Uh, what caught your eye? Went whoa! You know I I've heard. You know, I've read a bit about it. I can't say that I've done a deep dive in the, into the Nag Hammadi, but I've certainly done my share of reading. And, you know, I was taken and, you know, what I took away was that, you know, Jesus was, you know, traveled a lot more than they had said and that he was perhaps a Gnostic himself and in a scene. Yes. Uh, and they also seemed to suppress uh, Mary Magdalene and, and, uh, and the divine feminine uh, they didn't want any sort of goddess stuff finding its way into the Bible, so they they really demoted the goddess all the way down to Eve, who, you know, was responsible for the fall of all of mankind according to the Bible. And so, th- those were the couple things that I've taken out of just kind of reading and studying. What what do you think was left out? That's like, wait, you know, we really want to bring this back and have people be aware of this. Oh yeah, so much, so much was uh, decided for political reasons instead mm-hmm. of. Uh, uh, isn't it interesting that uh, uh, Nagamati and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the discovery of both, uh, not in conjunction with each other, were within a couple of years of each other. Mm. Uh, it's it almost as if the time had come. It was now a ripe time. Uh, and of course, yeah. it happened just about the same time I was born too, which is I find that very interesting. Absolutely. But the you know tradition has it that the Old Testament, what the Christians call the Old Testament, or what really the Hebrew Scriptures, were put together in the town of uh, Jamnia in the late 
uh, first century CE after Christ, uh, you know, almost a hundred years after Jesus was born. The New Testament was put together by the councils of uh, Hippo and Carthage, and that didn't happen until uh, what, around 393, 397 uh, CE after Jesus was born. So in the common era. So um, when you start to put this together, you realize that you have to look at the political situation of the world. Rome was in ascendancy. And uh, Rome was this huge, sprawled out area that covered most of the Western Hemisphere, uh, the, the, you know, of, of, of Europe and even into uh, Eastern Asia and all. And, uh, you know, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, had a reason for wanting to unite people. And he chose the, the, the medium of religion, if we, if we could have a single religion. Mm-hmm. The only trouble is that there were so many different ideas. You've brought up the Gnostics already, and there was the Eastern Church, and there was the Western Church, the Roman Church, and, and the church that was uh, in Constantinople, now it's Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And so when the committees brought these together, they had a political agenda. They wanted to make just one reading uh, available so that everybody would know about it. So a lot of these things disappeared. And that answers a fascinating question. When when you say, what did I find as I began to study these scriptures that uh, uh, was left out? Uh, take the book of Enoch as just one example. Um, the Old Testament writers knew about Enoch because he's quoted in the book of Genesis. Yeah, he was the one who never died. He was taken before, uh, before the Noah's just before Noah's flood, and it was his grand great grandson uh, Noah who built the ark and brought humanity through the flood and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the Old Testament writers, the ones who wrote Genesis, they they knew about it. The New Testament writers knew about Enoch uh, because Jude mentions him, Hebrews mentions mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. So it was a well known book, except we didn't have the book. All we had was a little fragment here and there. Seventeen seventy, everything changed. James Bruce, an Englishman, had a, a kind of a thirst for adventure, visited Ethiopia, stayed there for three years, and upon his return, he announced an astounding discovery. He had obtained somehow an old manuscript written in Gaz, the language of Ethiopia, and it turned out to be a full translation of the long-lost book of Enoch. So in 1770, for the first time, we in the West could read the very same scriptures that inspired the authors of Genesis and it inspired the authors of of Jude and and, and Hebrews. And it scared those committees so much they wanted to get rid of the whole book. They couldn't get rid of the name Enoch, but they could get rid of the book. And so they destroyed their copies, except for a few fragments that were in the Dead Sea Scrolls until lo and behold, James Bruce brings one back from, uh, from, uh, from Ethiopia, already done, uh, already written for the first time. Fascinating stories. What would have happened if we had had a copy of that book and if it was included? Things would have been read totally different than they are nowadays. Hmm. Hmm. What was in it? I mean, did he did he have an alternate origin story or was there was there stuff about other races from other places? Yeah, Enoch, Enoch was was really, um, I like to call him an Old Testament shaman. 
He had out-of-body experiences. Uh, he not only talked about the Anunnaki, he he named them. He gave them names. Mm. Uh, some of them were names that we recognize today, like Gabriel and Michael or Michael, uh, the names that are familiar to anybody who's familiar with the with with the Bible today. And uh, he was taken up to the seventh heaven. He saw things and experienced things. But this guy also was it. It was said uh, in in history. Not only in 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 uh, Mesopotamia, but also in Egypt and also in Greece. This guy was given three different names. He was given the credit with uh, inventing the writing. He was given credit with uh, inventing the art of the technology of building, so to speak. Uh, he was said to have built these great things, which even why even today in in Freemason societies and Masonic orders, uh, Enoch has a very prominent part in the ritual. So he was he was. Uh... The same being as Hermes or Thoth in Egypt, Hermes Trismegistus, Istris. Yeah, he's called Istris. He's called Hermes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So he was the immortal that was yeah trying to share the secrets of the soul's ascendancy and immortality with humanity, so that they exactly. could realize you are also like us. You're just not as far along yet. Right. Basically, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he was he was said uh, he was he was he was the, the Old Testament shaman who had it all together. He really did. Yeah. And he was he was said to have written down the knowledge of building. Hmm. on stone tablets and then buried them in the earth in two places, once in Egypt and once up in Anatolia, which really got a lot of people thinking when Gobekli Tepe was discovered because here was this enigmatic building structure that must have taken some fantastic technology to move these great building blocks, but this was back in 11,800 anyway, uh, BC, I mean, uh, years ago rather. And then Gobekli Tepe was buried and people began to wonder, could, could Gobekli Tepe be the message of Enoch to the world? Um, and of course, he did so much that you, it's tempting to say one guy did it and read the whole thing historically. But yeah. what if the story of Enoch is a composite, a, a, uh, a metaphysical or a mystical or mythological composite of a lot of different things that were going on at the same time mm. and all given credit by Enoch. So if we read the book of Enoch today, uh, are we reading a mythology that really bursts open, opens up the whole idea of what uh, what was going on back in those days and answers some of those questions of duality? I just I just had a thought. It was the emerald tablet, is that, a, is that a real thing? Is that in a museum somewhere locked away in the Vatican or something? Or is that a myth and that's never really... There's, it's not real. You hear a lot about it. It was you start to study esoteric and stuff. It's like the emerald tablets of Hermes, yeah. or emerald tablets of Thoth, or whatever. And you, you'll even see pictures, but it looks like it's photoshopped. Like it's like okay, I don't know yeah. if this thing's actually real or not. But what what have you come across? I I don't know. I come across a lot of stories, and I'll tell you, I used to just look at these things and automatically revert back to my soft drive, which says, be a left brain skeptic and doubt yep. it. Yep, yep. But the farther I go and the older I get, and the more I study this thing, the more I say, wait a minute, Jim, keep yep. your mind open. You yep. don't know what you're dealing with. Don't rule anything out just because uh, our tradition says to. Uh, it's really heavy stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's great, Jim. I think if, if that's what the listener gets is to keep an open mind. You and I, before we came on this uh, episode, we were just talking about you know, the, that 
we have this cultural amnesia because we've been yeah. edu- we've been educated, you know, in the Bible or in our history, which just dates back a few thousand years. So there's nothing beyond that, and yet, you know, there's all these different you know, artifacts and writings that are discovered and mythologies, you know, and I remember when I was younger, you know, the, the topic of Atlantis was, mm-hmm. you know, nobody was taking any of that stuff. Seriously. Yeah, that was right. just like, like you said, it's come on, you know, that's, yeah. you know, or somebody would say, Oh, isn't that the, the cartoon with the, the sunken city it's underwater. And it just seems so fantastical. Wonder but, woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, but now, I mean, I'm in my, my mid fifties, all of a sudden there's a lot of books written about lost yeah. civilizations like Atlantis and Lemuria and all these different things. And I'm in a different place. I can look at it and go, what is this trying to teach me? What is this trying to reach in us as a species? And I think my biggest takeaway is, look, keep open-minded. There's there's truths that are trying to reach humanity. Yes. And perhaps you and I play a role in sort of taking a look at them, not saying it's true or not, but what is the deeper meaning of this? What is the myth trying to instruct in us? Is it just to keep an open mind so that we're more open-minded for the things that are about to occur? Or, you know, what is it about Atlantis that we know? uh, And I guess I just wanted to ask you, like, what what would you instruct somebody if they're starting to look at this stuff? You know, uh, where, what, what is the myth trying to teach us or what are, what is the takeaway? Yeah, this is why shows like yours, Tony, I think are so important because they they really, uh, they they teach us all to keep this open mind. On the one hand, we can get a lot of spiritual or moral or ethical principles from the story of Atlantis. The uh, story of Atlantis takes us, tells us about human hubris, you know, and how yeah. we how we, uh, we we try to um, always play with technological tools that we shouldn't. And one day they could destroy us just like it destroyed Atlantis. I mean, mm-hmm. there's great, there's great mythological teaching there. Yep. The trouble is that, that as, as the more you study this story, the more you realize that if that was Plato's whole idea, just to teach a moral lesson, he didn't have to give us all the details, including yeah. the date when this happened. What? It, who cares what the date was? But Plato gives it the exact date, which yeah. corresponds to the very end of the last ice age, uh, the Younger Dryas Ice Age. And why did he describe things like he had no business talking about? Like, why did he need to put elephants out there? You know, mm-hmm. why? Why did he need to describe the the situation so so perfectly? Uh, he almost gave too much information if that's yeah. all he was trying to do was to talk about a uh, you know a mythological meaning to the whole thing. So yeah, open mind and just keep looking at it. Ask yourself, what if all the time? That's the big question. What if? Where was Plato getting the information? Because he was really the first. Like, was he? Did he have some secret texts and some books that maybe he was privy Actually, to, or was he intuitively um, working with? The information. No, no. He actually said the whole story was told to him by his relative uh, Solon. It was written down by uh, Solon, who tra- traveled to Egypt and lived. Uh-huh. And uh, Solon met with the Egyptian priests there, 
And yep. they told him about what Egypt calls the Zeptepi, the first time when these strangers came in by their boats from the West with this concoction of crazy story that in one day and in one night, their entire homeland was destroyed. And these strangers knew so much and they yeah. knew so much that over the years, they were started to call gods, the first gods of Egypt. And Solon said, well, when did this happen? And they told him exactly when it happened. And if you add the, the, the years that they gave Solon and then add the years from Solon till Socrates, all Socrates was said he was doing is just, I'm just a scribe. I'm just writing down the story as I hear it. Yeah. Well, so that, j- that jives because a lot of what I've read were that the Atlantean priesthood, uh, the ones that got out, uh, relocated to Egypt. So it would make sense that it, that that myth and those those stories and the legend would exist in Egypt in the in the priesthood yeah. and in the adepts there. So yeah. And 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 if you put that story together too, even with the other way, uh the stories of uh, Quetzalcoatl and uh, uh, the uh, the story of the the uh in 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 the Central America and in and in Peru and mm-hmm. all around the world there are these stories about these these people who just showed up all roughly the same day with, yeah. and, and they seem so godlike yep. that uh, they had the reputation of being gods. Yeah, interesting. Well, Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's just a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Do you have any creative projects, any programs, or anything that you'd like the listeners to know about that's, that, that might be? We'll, we'll direct them to your website and your great book. Oh, books, sure. But, but sure. is there anything else you'd like uh, listeners to know about? This will be coming out in the next Yeah, couple. well, well, right, right now, uh, my last, my latest book, Censoring God, just came out on April first, and so right now, that's pretty much what I'm engaged in doing is talking to people about that book. So I'm in kind of a Beautiful. creative hiatus right now. But yeah. if people follow the website, the www.jimwillis.net, they'll uh, be able to follow all of this. And also, one thing there's there's a contact page on that website. You know, talking into a microphone is one thing, but I even during the pandemic, I really miss seeing people. And if people yeah. want to contact me through that contact page, I love talking to people and making new friends long distance via via this kind of media. So love to hear from you. That's great. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your insight and your wisdoms. Keep up the great writing. Uh, and it's just been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Tony. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I took an instant liking to Jim, as you could probably tell. He has an easygoing way about him that is really endearing, not to mention he brings so much wisdom to the conversation. And he and I have both found useful patterns in mythic stories and esoteric studies. And I like what Jim said about how we're learning to read things mythically and metaphorically, even poetically. This jives with my approach, as you all know. And as an example of furthering my own study, I'm very likely to dig into the Book of Enoch to see what I can find, and maybe a deep dive into the Nag Hammadi scriptures for a better understanding of Christ and Mary Magdalene. I honestly find these investigations natural and fulfilling. It's sort of my own way of putting the pieces back together. To order any of Jim's excellent books, go to www.jimwillis.net. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac, and you're listening to Basecamp for Men. Mm-hmm.